Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. What does it mean to be great? If you look around our world on any given day, you will find all sorts of answers to that question, whether directly or not. Maybe, maybe you become great through your income, through your net worth. Maybe you become great through, maybe it comes not through material goods, maybe it comes through something a little more immaterial, maybe it comes through leaving a legacy. Maybe it comes through being able to look back at the end of your life and knowing that people are going to remember you after you're gone. Maybe it comes through having buildings named after you, having statues erected in your honor. Maybe you become great through giving back. Maybe it all comes down to just what you can do for other people. People have done good things for you, so you have to do good deeds for other people to make sure that that they will think highly of you. As as we're headed back into school this fall, as our kids head back into school, there might be all sorts of potential paths for greatness presented, whether it's put in those terms or not. Maybe it just comes down to what does it mean to matter? Maybe, Maybe greatness... Maybe significance comes through achievement. Maybe it comes through having the highest grade in each class, having the highest GPA, being at the top of the class rank. Maybe it comes through something as simple as what what crowd are you accepted into? What table do you sit at at lunch? Maybe it comes through doing well in extracurriculars, whether that's sports or band or theater or a club or something else like that. Maybe if you're great in that, then you matter. What does it mean to be great? Does it just come down to being well thought of? Is it having achievements you can point to that show that you matter, that you've left an impact, that after you're gone, someone's going to remember that you were there? Maybe it's a matter of having lots of stuff. What, what does it mean to be great? We've taken the time in this sermon series we started last week, and we're going to be in for a few more weeks, to focus uh, on what things we should take back to school. What are the things that that as we enter into a new school year, we think our, our kids should take with them into wherever God might send them, and what are the things that we want to focus on as a church to make up who we are as a group of people following Jesus together. And we kicked off this series last week by looking at, looking at prayer and talking about what is available to us when we make prayer a priority in our lives. And as we started with that focus on prayer, we began by focusing on a what we might call our vertical relationship, so to speak, who we are as we stand before God. And with that as the foundation, this week we want to move out from that to look at what we might term our horizontal relationship, the attitude that should inform how we interact with those around us each and every day. What, what is it? How do we go about those relationships in light of who we are before God? And through the passage we're going to look at this morning, we see a pattern laid out for us based on the life of Jesus. And when we take that example, one instance of that being what Isaac just shared with us, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, when we follow that pattern laid out for us, what we find is a pathway that leads to true greatness. When we look at what we see from Jesus, we see what you see on the screen there, that the way to be great is to focus on the greatness of others. We're going to be in the second chapter of the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to there or follow along on the screen, and because I know 
especially with it being a holiday weekend, that every single one of you, since you're here, you remember every word that is ever said from this stage, so I just need to deal with the elephant in the room. I know you're all thinking it already, and yes, I did preach this passage once already. So you're all, you, I assume everyone remembers that sermon word for word. It was uh, Palm Sunday uh, of 2020, and I just mentioned that because, first off, that doesn't mean I'm out of ideas and we're already rehashing old sermons or something like that. Uh, but we're circling back to this passage because, uh, first off, the last time we dealt with this passage, it was on Palm Sunday, and so we had a specific angle that we came to that text with. And second off, this text is so rich. There's so much in Philippians 2 to tell us about who Jesus is and how we are to live in response to him that we could spend uh, weeks on end in this text without getting to the bottom of it. And so we want to take another crack at this text this morning. And so let's do that now. I'm going to read Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4 for us. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You've maybe heard it said before, either by me or by someone else, that any time you're reading Scripture and you come across that word, therefore, it's always important to back up and see what the therefore is there for. It's easy to remember. And that's especially true when we're reading a, letter, a, a book of the Bible like one of Paul's letters. Uh, because when we come across that word, therefore, it's usually an indication in some way or another that the author is building an argument for us, and they've told us something, and now they're moving on to something else, and they're saying, therefore, in light of what I've just told you, this, is, this next piece of my argument is true. So it's worth taking some time to back up just a tad and see what Paul has said at the end of chapter 1 and see how that carries into chapter 2. Just before this passage, Paul has told the Philippians that no matter what happens, they are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the message of Jesus. And so now, in the passage that we just read, Paul begins to work out what that means, what it looks like to do the thing he has called them to do in the paragraph before, describing what it means to be a group of people who are following Jesus together. And if you had to boil down what Paul is getting at in these verses that we've just read this morning, if you had to boil it all down to just one word, I think that word is unity. God's people should always be unified. It's not an option. It's not something Paul reserves only for the really mature Christians who have a really good church and they all really like each other and they have good cooks that can throw good potlucks for them every now and then. It's not something reserved just for the Christians who, have all, who all come from the exact same background, who have all the exact same interests outside of church. When we begin following Jesus, we are not only united to him, we're also united to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm always struck when I read this passage just by just how low Paul puts the bar there in verse 1. He says, if you have any encouragement... 
from being united with Christ. If you have any comfort from the love of Jesus, if you have any share of the Holy Spirit at all, if you have any, any tenderness and compassion, these are all things he maps out that are anyone who has followed Jesus for any length of time has experienced. So in other words, Paul is saying that if you've spent any time with Jesus at all, what he's saying in these verses is for you. If you're here this morning, if you're listening to my voice, the call of this passage is for you. It's for all of us. We can't ignore it. We can't push it off on someone else. We can't say it's something we'll figure out eventually. Paul's not describing something that's optional, and he's also not describing something that's just some kind of vague feeling. If you notice there in verse 2, Paul begins and ends by talking about our mind. He says, if the things he says in verse 1 are true about us, then the result is that we will be like-minded. We'll have the same love and spirit, and then he ends by emphasizing we will have one mind. The unity Paul describes in these verses is not just boiling everything down to the lowest common denominator and coming up with some wishy-washy statement that really doesn't say anything at all, but everyone can agree with. He's not saying just don't get too caught up in the details, just keep everyone happy and you can be unified and it'll be fine. The unity he's describing is based in what we believe about the gospel of Jesus, that he came, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven and will one day return. It's not unity we can enjoy as long as things are going well and my needs are being met. This is unity grounded in the fact that we are all following Jesus together. And by having our minds focused first and foremost on that one goal, we are united with one another along that path. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you fit the bill of what Paul describes there in verse 1, you have been called to unity, to the same mind, the same spirit, the same love, along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are joined together with in worship right now. In John chapter 17, we're told the words of Jesus' prayer to the Father before he is arrested and eventually taken to the cross. And in the midst of that prayer, he prays for all people who will believe in his message. He prays for people like us. And one of the things he prays about in the verse that you can see on the screen right now is that we would be unified. He says that in the last half of that verse that the world would know that Jesus was truly sent by God the Father and that Jesus truly is who he claims to be through our unity with one another. That the world would look at Jesus' people and through our unity, through our love for one another, they would know that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. And I take the time to say all that because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's a lot of division in our world right now. Just speaking from personal experience, I've made a concerted effort over the past month or two to just consume less news because I was exhausted having to listen every day to all the division going on in our world. And in the midst of a world that puts up walls of division at every turn imaginable, people who believe in the message of Jesus have been called to unity. We have been called to demonstrate to the world around us what it looks like to love someone else even when they don't agree with us on every single issue. If someone is your brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ, that is the most important thing about them. They are not your brother or sister as long as they voted the same way as you, as long as they live in the same part of town as you, as long as they drive the same kind of vehicle as you and like the same kind of movies as you, as long as they have the same stance on masks or vaccines as you, or have the same hobbies as you. They are your brother or sister in Jesus, period. And we have been called to unity 
together because of our shared love of Jesus. In a world that looks for every excuse imaginable to divide and to disagree, may we, as Jesus' people, in light of who Jesus is, show what it looks like to love one another well. But how are we supposed to do this? If you're following along with me right now, if you're taking me seriously, you might be thinking that this sounds way too difficult, and I am right there with you. But this calling to be unified is not something Paul lays out, a task that he gives us and expects us to figure out on our own. The way to fulfill this teaching is to grow in humility. Paul says to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Our world celebrates ambition. People who go the extra mile to get ahead. Paul says selfish ambition leads to trampling over those around us and leaves broken relationships in its wake. Our world calls us to seek our own glory, to have things named after us, to have statues built in our honor. Paul cautions us against seeking vain conceit. Literally in the Greek, he says to not seek empty glory, the kind of thing that might make us look good for a time but just leaves us unfulfilled and wanting more. Instead of seeking these things to build ourselves up, up, he calls us to a better way. He calls us to the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is the way of humility. Jesus' people look to the needs of others before their own. Unity is possible when we all recognize, first and foremost, our allegiance to Jesus. We don't participate as a part of this body because it raises our self-esteem, because it makes us look good, but because we are desiring to walk in life in response to the love God has shown us through sending his son. And that response looks like following the example of Jesus and moving the focus off of ourselves so that we can focus on others instead. And when we do that, we find the unity Paul called us to in this passage. We find the pathway to true greatness, greatness that is defined on the terms of Jesus. So let's look at the next section of this passage where Paul walks us through how Jesus descended into service and then ascended into glory, and how we can follow that same pattern. Picking up in verse 5, reading down to verse 11, Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the example that we follow. I'm not up here saying we all just have to try really hard to be humble and be united with one another. I'm, I'm saying that when we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we respond with the same attitude Jesus had towards us to the world around us. We are able to fulfill the calling that is laid out here of considering others better than ourselves and looking to the needs of others in service. I can stand up here and say to our kids that they should go back into school looking to serve others because that's the example Jesus sets out for us. And Jesus set that example 
by setting aside His greatness for our sake. From before time, Jesus enjoyed equality with God. He enjoyed perfection in heaven as the second member of the Trinity, and yet He did not hold on to it for His own sake. I've heard it said, I'm pretty sure I heard it said by Dennis Martin, and so if he's not the one that told me this, I'll give him credit for it anyways, that, that what, Jesus des- or what Paul describes about Jesus in this passage is a little bit like if you've ever seen a little kid having a toy and another kid coming up and trying to take that toy from them. What's the kid who has the toy first going to say? Mine. I was expecting someone to guess along with me there, but I guess not. A kid with a toy, when you try to take that kid away from them, they're going to say, Mine. Jesus had every opportunity to say, mine. Jesus had every opportunity to look at the perfect bliss of heaven and say, mine. To look at the absence of pain and suffering that he had experienced for eternity and say, mine. To look at all the riches and glories of heaven and say, mine. And yet, that's not what our Savior Jesus did. Paul lines out here how he made himself nothing. He gave up the best parts of heaven for the worst parts of earth. He was born not as a prince in a palace. He was born to a poor couple that weren't even married yet. He was laid in a cattle trough the night of his birth. He never had a home of his own. He never accumulated wealth or power. He never had an army following him. He lived his entire life among the lower rungs of society. He died in relative obscurity in one of the most painful ways humanity has ever constructed in such a way on the cross that that anyone observing him die would have looked at him as a complete failure and as under the curse of God. He descended from the absolute highest of highs to the absolute lowest of lows. And that is the example that he sets out for us to follow as God's people. Instead of looking to what was the path of least resistance for him, Jesus looked to what was best for humanity, what was best for us. He chose instead to endure the limitations of being human, to endure the imperfections of this world, to endure suffering on the cross, to endure death itself so that we might be redeemed from sin and death. And brought into life with God. And in light of what Christ has done for us, Paul calls us, people who have been redeemed by the service of Jesus, to the same type of humility that he showed us, to, to look not to our own needs, but to what is in the best interest of those around us. To not fight for ourselves and our own preferences, but to choose instead what is best for others. We are able to serve in humility because that is what Jesus has done for us. And when we do that, the result among God's people is the unity Paul calls us to at the beginning of this passage that shows the world that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. We go out with an attitude of service into our jobs, into our homes, into our schools, into anywhere else that we might go because the love of God and his presence that we talked about last week in prayer goes with us. It's because of Jesus' emptying that we have been filled. And because he has filled us up, we can empty ourselves for others. And through that emptying, through putting others ahead of ourselves, we find true greatness. 
the sort of greatness described here following the way of Jesus might not show up with awards and acclaim in this life. It sure didn't for Jesus. Instead, it brought something that far surpasses any sort of acclaim this world could ever offer. Because of his emptying, because Jesus chose service instead of himself, Jesus has been elevated to the highest place imaginable. Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is ruling over the entire universe. Jesus descended from heaven to earth. He was vindicated at his resurrection. He was raised to the highest position imaginable where he currently resides as Lord of all with the promise that one day he will return and all of creation will acknowledge that he truly is Lord of all. And it's because Jesus followed that pattern. It's because Jesus descended into service so that we could be lifted up by God that God's people are able to follow that calling as well. It doesn't look glamorous by the world's standards, but it is the sort of life our God promises will lead to glory because it leads to life with Him. And that is where true greatness lies. Our world will make all sorts of suggestions about how to attain greatness. But Jesus has ascended to the highest level of greatness our world has ever known. The way he has attained that level of greatness is through humble service. Even if you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, and you dismiss what Paul says here about how Jesus is seated at the highest place with the name that's above every name because, you know, that's spiritual stuff that I can't really see or validate or anything like that, you can't deny the impact Jesus has had on our world. You would be hard-pressed to find another historical figure who has had a greater impact on the Western world today. The historian Yaroslav Pelikan said, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. And he was writing that long enough ago at this point that we can say for 20 full centuries. Jesus did not attain that status through bragging about his own accomplishments, through asserting his own authority, through assembling an army, or anything like that. He attained that through service. Through lowering himself, he has been elevated to the highest place imaginable. Ralph Waldo Emerson said once that the name of Jesus was not so much written as plowed into the history of our world. And that influence brought about through Jesus lowering himself in, extends into almost every realm of our life, even today. Most historical figures see their influence wane after their time on earth ends, but the opposite is the case for Jesus. He is far more widely known today than he was when he was on the earth 2,000 years ago. It was pretty common for rulers in the ancient world to organize time around either when they were born or when they first came into power, as a reminder that they were the central figure of their kingdom. Jesus never did that. Jesus never forced anyone to rearrange the calendar to acknowledge him, to acknowledge when he was born, and yet that is what our world has done. Every time you look at the date, every time you think about what year it is, whether you recognize it cognitively in that moment or not, you are looking at a tangible reminder of the impact Jesus has had on our world. Jesus is the figure around which all of our, our entire conception of time turns. 
And that's not just some abstract thing out in the world way out there. The fact that Jesus has come to this earth affects the community we live in every day, even those who are not followers of Jesus. I don't know if you all know this or not. I was doing some some really in-depth research this week, and it turns out we have a hospital downtown. I'm going to go check it out later. I, I just heard about it. A few weeks before I moved here, uh, I ran into one of my professors from college, and we were catching up. We hadn't seen each other in a few years, and I said to him, hey, I don't know if you heard or not, but I'm here in a few weeks. I'm going to Rochester, Minnesota. And he looked at me with this horrified look on his face and said, oh, uh, well, uh, it, what, it, is, everything, is everything okay? And that's when I realized that he thought I was telling him that I was going to be a patient at the Mayo Clinic, not that I had gotten a job at a church. And he wasn't, he, it was not the reaction I was planning on getting, and I had to clarify myself. And, and I've had conversations since then, I'm sure plenty of you have had as well. It goes something like someone asks you where you're from, you say Rochester, Minnesota, and they kind of look at you strange, and you say it's where the Mayo Clinic is, and they say, oh yeah, I know where, I've heard of that. And that's just kind of the reality of the community that we live in. And if I can be so bold this morning... Let me say that our city is on the map because of Jesus. In 1883, a group of ladies who were followers of Jesus decided that their city needed a hospital to care for the hurting after a tornado had blown through town. And they felt compelled to meet that need, even though they weren't trained to serve as nurses. And out of that desire to serve those around them, just as Jesus has served us, St. Mary's and the Mayo Clinic were formed. We can't get away from Jesus. The fact that he has come permeates every part of our world. And he did not attain that status through a great public relations campaign, through clever marketing, through spending a lot on advertising. He reached that status through service. He came to this earth to serve, and he invites us to do the same. So no matter where you go in the coming week, go with a mind towards service. I'm not saying that if you, I'm not giving any kind of blanket guarantee that if you serve like Jesus, then you'll get the same kind of glory that Jesus gets or something like that. What I am saying is that when you understand how much Jesus loves you, when you understand how deeply he cares about you, what he has done to serve you in his death and his resurrection, and you desire to do the same for others, you will experience the love, the joy, and the peace that comes with living as God's servant in this world. And so may we, as a church family, united together under the lordship of Jesus, desire to serve, desire to look to the needs of others so that the name of Jesus might be made great. And to remind ourselves of that, we have a little something for you to take home today, or if you're watching online and want one of these, we'll figure out a way to get it to you. In case you didn't know, in case you've forgotten, our mission statement as a church begins by saying that Marion Road Christian Church exists to glorify God. That's what we're here to do as a church family, but that is not just something that we do as long as we're in this building, as long as it's a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And so for that reason, because that's something that we want to carry over into every part of our lives, uh, we want to send everyone that wants one home today with one of these little stickers. And they're a lot smaller than I planned on them being because the the guy that ordered them, who may or may not have been me, didn't really have a good um, understanding of how space worked when he was ordering them. But these little stickers have the beginning of our mission statement on them. 
But you'll notice that instead of having our church name at the beginning of it, there's a blank. And the reason why that is is because that's a place for us to write in our own names as a part of this church family. So we'll have these out in the fellowship hall as you're leaving today. If you want to take one, put it somewhere where you're going to see it often. I've already put one on my laptop so that we can look at it every day and, and we can fill in our own name there and know that no matter where we are going, we are going with the purpose of bringing glory to God. We exist as individuals following Jesus as a church family together to bring glory to the name of Jesus. So no matter where you go this week, go with an eye towards service, knowing that it will bring glory to God. As you serve, wherever you are, no matter how small it might seem, no matter how who it is that you are serving, you are bringing glory to God and therefore serve well. That's my encouragement. As our kids go back to school, as parents and grandparents and whatever other role we might have, going, having our lives change with kids going back to school, may we all go out from this place today with an eye towards service. May we make the name of Jesus great by emptying ourselves just as he has done for us. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the message of Jesus that Paul summarizes for us in these verses we've looked at this morning. That through Jesus emptying himself and coming to this earth, he has served us by giving up his own life and was vindicated at his resurrection was, and has ascended into heaven. And so as people who believe in that message, people who are followers of Jesus, help us to internalize that message, to preach it to ourselves, and give us wisdom for how we might follow that same pattern as we go out from this place wherever we might go. Help us follow you faithfully all the days of our lives. Give us wisdom when we don't know where to go. Give us strength when where you are calling us is difficult. Give us hope when we, when we are tempted to despair. And no matter where we go, may we go forth as individuals and as a church family, bringing glory to you. We thank you that you go with us. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 